I should say while the sheets are being passed out that my son in the faith uh, introduced me as Dr. William Lane. And I assure you that such introductions build distance between us. I want us to become very close. You and I are brothers and sisters who together are going to listen to the detail of the Word of God. Please feel comfortable in calling me Bill, as Scott certainly has learned to do as well. I assure you it's great fun to come into a community where we know one another by our first names. At the very beginning, it might be well to define the goals of our Bible study. And the first goal is a fresh perspective on Jesus. Now, we all think that we know who Jesus is. Many of you might say, I've walked with the person of Jesus for a number of years. But what you discover when you listen to the witness of the New Testament is that each of the writers actually struggled with how am I going to express who Jesus really is to me, to my community, to those with whom we are seeking to share him. We don't often think of our evangelists, Mark and Matthew and Luke and John, as theologians, but they were. And what God did was he built certain sensitivities into each of them so that one saw one particular aspect and another still a different aspect. And our privilege is not to bring them together like homogenized milk, cream in every drop, but rather to appreciate the distinctiveness of the witness that's being born. It'll be fun for us to listen to Mark and to see through the filter of Mark's experience, of Mark's walk with the Lord, what aspects of Jesus lingered with him and that ought to linger with us as we enter into the witness of this particular evangelist. A second goal is a fresh appreciation of a gospel. I don't know if I had asked you at the very beginning of our time of study together, how many of you are aware of the fact that a gospel, in fact the gospel of Mark, was a brand new expression of literature? One of the questions that New Testament scholars have wrestled with is what is what are the sources out of which the gospel itself came? Are there analogs or analogies in the ancient literature? You might be surprised to know that there were actually ancient novels. And one suggestion is that Mark patterned his presentation, his narrative of Jesus after a novel. It's not going to walk. Certainly, a popular definition of a gospel is a biography of Jesus. 
But what kind of a biography is it that focuses roughly a third of its narrative upon what took place in a matter of days in Jerusalem? If I wanted to write the definitive biography of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and I produced a volume where a third of the pages were entitled Dallas. Why, the people of that city would rightly be incensed. And critics would say, you're not writing biography. You're writing hagiography. St. John or something of that nature. No, it's not a biography. Precisely what is a gospel? We'll wrestle with that question briefly tonight together, where I've, ex I've expressed for you three quite acceptable answers, one of which for which I have a preference. We're also concerned with a fresh awareness of the dimension of depth in our Bible study. I have sometimes been hurt when people say to me, I don't care for Bible study. I find it, frankly, quite flat. That hurts me because I came to faith as a young man through reading the pages of the gospel and then moving over into the book of Acts, which is actually a part of the gospel of Luke and discovering the person of the Holy Spirit. But I discovered the person of Jesus in the pages of the gospel. And to tell me, one who invested his entire life in the teaching of the New Testament, that you find Bible study flat is almost insulting. And yet, I understand where that position is coming from. If all you find when you open the Bible is printed words on blank pieces of paper, of course that's flat. You've got the dimension of length and width, perhaps. But where is the dimension of depth? I'm going to suggest to you that the dimension of depth comes when you begin to see the faces of the men and the women and the children for whom the gospel of Mark was a gift in a particular crisis. We need to begin to see the faces of people who were like you and like me. And all of a sudden, Scripture becomes alive. And we begin to see where it impacts our lives. Where there is a point of critical intersection between what we're facing and what Mark and his community face. And it's going to be great fun to begin to see the faces of those to whom the gospel of Mark was first given. And finally, we're going to be concerned with a fresh awareness of the detail of this particular gospel. If I were to ask you about the temptation of Jesus, talk to me about the temptation of Jesus almost certainly 
he would tell me it had to do with the turning of stone into bread, leaping from the pinnacle of the temple, or receiving the adoration of the nations in exchange for bowing down to Satan. We all know that those are the three great temptations. But how many of you are aware of the fact that not one of them is mentioned in the Gospel of Mark? Mark tells us about the testing of Jesus in the wilderness in two verses. I am convinced those two verses are absolutely critical for what the Gospel of Mark is all about. We'll look at them, Lord willing, next week. But I share that with you to say it is so easy to begin to take the details of the Gospels and mix them together and not have an awareness of the distinctive witness of Mark. So let's begin with the question, what is a Gospel? Point B on your outline. We begin with the fact that it's important to distinguish between the word gospel, lowercase g, and gospel, higher-case g. When we read in the opening line of Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, that's the lowercase g. When we read in Mark 1.14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. That's lowercase. Lowercase is what we use for the oral message that Jesus proclaimed or that the apostles proclaimed. When we use a capital G, we're talking about a written document. The Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Luke-Acts. The Gospel of John. Now the interesting fact is, if you were to find an ancient manuscript of Mark, it wouldn't even say the Gospel According to Mark, it would simply say katamarkon, which means according to Mark, according to Matthew, according to Luke, according to John. Those would be the superscription, as it were, in that manuscript if it had all four Gospels. Because it was understood there was only really one message. But it was filtered through four communities. So when we say the gospel of Mark, we are speaking about the written document itself. Now under point two, I've given you three common definitions, and I'll share with you why I prefer one of the three. My guess is if I had given you a little three-by-five card when you came in and said, write down on this card 
your definition of a gospel, you might well have come up with definition number one. A gospel is a proclamation of good news. Now that's a very fine definition because it tells us that behind our written gospels there is apostolic preaching. The word was first preached and then after a while it was written down. But oral preaching stands behind our gospel. It's important for us to remember that. In fact, what we'll discover when we look at some of the detail of Mark's gospel is that it's easy to take a portion which is expressed in the third person. He was in a wilderness place and he was giving himself to prayer and his disciples went and along with Peter to find him and said to him, what are you doing here? It's easy to take that third person and put it into the first person. And you can hear the preaching of Peter. Why, he was in a wilderness place praying. And I and the others went looking for him. And we said, what on earth are you doing here? So that's a good definition. I don't think it's the best one. How about the second one, though? Would you have come up with this? A gospel is a witness document. It bears witness to the person of Jesus. Now, you all know that our pastor, Scotty, as well as Clyde, did their work at Westminster Theological Seminary. They are what I would call the grandchildren. It was my privilege to study for a Master of Theology degree at Westminster back in the day when the finest scholars in the field of apologetics, Old Testament, New Testament, church history, theology were concentrated in Westminster. The finest New Testament scholar in the whole evangelical camp was undoubtedly Ned B. Stonehouse. And I went to study for a year under Dr. Stonehouse. He's remembered as a man who had a global grasp of New Testament studies. He was probably the first evangelical to take on the giants who were pioneering Form criticism, Martin DeBalius and Rudolf Bultmann. Most evangelicals were totally unprepared to take on the critical onslaught that would be unleashed by these men and their students. But Stoney, or Dr. Stonehouse, he was equipped to do so. Now, Dr. Stonehouse published two very useful volumes. The first he entitled, The Witness of Matthew and Mark to Christ. The second one he entitled, The Witness of Luke to Christ, and he intended to publish a third volume, The Witness of John to Christ, but that one was never completed. He was right in seeing the Gospels as witness documents. 
and write in scene that each of the evangelists presented a different portraiture of Jesus. And his volume on Matthew and Mark, a relatively small volume, is still useful to this day for his appreciation of the distinctive witness of Matthew, the distinctive witness of Mark, the distinctive witness of Luke. So that's also a very good definition. But it's not my preferred one. The preferred one is the third. A gospel is a passion narrative with a long introduction. What I mean by that, I intended to indicate on your sheet by the lines that are represented, and I intended the second line to be actually much longer, both at the front and at the back of the line, because John is a longer gospel. And it has material before Mark begins, and it has material after Mark is brought to a conclusion. And I wanted the arrows to actually come out of Mark 3, 6 and John 2, 18 through 22 to indicate that one-third of the Gospel of Mark, one-half of the Gospel of John, is devoted to what happens when Jesus goes to Jerusalem to suffer and die and be validated, vindicated by the resurrection from the dead. What does Mark 3, 6 tell us? Well, it's a passage that comes at the end of a study unit that is extended from 1.14 to 3.6. It shows us the early ministry of Jesus in Galilee, a ministry that was characterized by the attraction of crowds of persons, by conflict with the authorities of his day. And it comes to conclusion in 3.6 with the word, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. You know from that early position how the story of Jesus is going to be brought to its climax. It's going to be with the death of Jesus. And so that's what I want, is the arrow to actually go from 3.6 over to that larger portion where chapter 11, 1 through 11, introduces Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Now, the entrance into Jerusalem in the Gospel of John occurs already in chapter 12. All that follows from John 12 through John 20 is going to be concerned with what happened in those last days in Jerusalem. And in John 2, 18 through 22, you have the famous word about destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. What the authorities say, you're going to raise the temple in three days, 
why this temple has taken 46 years to bring it to the point where it is. They heard Jesus speaking only at the very literal level. But John tells us, but after he was raised from the dead, then his disciples remembered he had said this, and they understood. But already in chapter 2, you know how the story of Jesus is going to end. It's going to end at Golgotha. And so, by drawing an arrow there, I want you to see that the focus of each of these accounts is on the passion, the sufferings, the death, and finally the vindication of Jesus through resurrection, and we could put a whole line of references, which would enable us to see Mark writes from the perspective of Jesus' sufferings in Jerusalem from the very word go. That helps us to understand something of the character of a gospel. It was a very new form. It had never been done in this way before. And so we come to the conclusion we describe a gospel as a passion narrative with a long introduction because from one-third to one-half of our canonical gospels are devoted to Jesus' sufferings, death, and resurrection in Jerusalem. It is a brand new form of literature. Now, there were three building blocks to the gospels. The first may be unfamiliar to you. It's simply a transliteration of a Greek word that means preaching or proclamation. It is the word kerugma. Kerugma, however, has come to mean in New Testament studies apostolic preaching. So one of the building blocks of our gospel, of the gospel of Mark, was the apostolic preaching or the preaching of the apostles that focused on what Jesus did, on the deeds of Jesus. The second is almost certainly unfamiliar. It is the word didache, which simply is a transliteration of the Greek word for teaching. But in New Testament studies, it has come to mean the apostolic teaching. And we know that the apostolic teaching, as opposed to the apostolic preaching, focused on the words of Jesus. And there were cycles of the words of Jesus. Remember how when Paul met with the elders of the church from Ephesus at Miletus? He was going to meet with them for the last time. And in the course of describing his farewell, the integrity of his life, how he had gone from house to house with tears, calling on Jew and Gentile to repent and receive the good news of the gospel, he said, remembering, calling to mind, the word of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is better to give than to receive. 
all Paul had to do was to jog their memory. Now, that word of Jesus is not found in any of the four of our Gospels. It isn't found in the new materials from Nag Hammadi, Gospel of Thomas, and the Gospel of Truth, and so forth, which were heretical works. It is found only in Acts 20.35. How is it that Paul knows this word? How is it that the elders of the Ephesian church knew this word and it simply had to be called to mind? Because they had learned cycles of the words of Jesus. And we call that didache. I'm going to say the first word and I want you to repeat it after me. Kerugma. You might well hear Scotty use that word, or he might hear him use the adjective charismatic. Say kerugma. All right, didache. And what I sometimes would tell my students, if you can't remember that word, remember this lecture and how after it your head did ache. <laughs> All right. Now, there was a third building block, and that's the passion narrative. That's the part that is introduced with Mark 11, 1 through 11, and extends to 1547 with a burial of Jesus, followed by the epilogue, the empty tomb. Now, passion, our English word passion, comes from the Latin term, Patio or patio, to use the classical pronunciation, which means I suffer. The past participle of this verb is pasu. All we did in English was we knocked off the ending, the oot, and then built an English ending, and it becomes passion. But passion always has to do with suffering. Our word patience is from patio. Patience always entails a certain amount of suffering. The passion narrative is the oldest block of the gospel. Christians gathered around the time that we call Good Friday, the Saturday of impatience and Easter Sunday, and they shared the story of Jesus, of the walk to Golgotha, of the burial in the tomb, of the rolling of the rock, the sealing of the tomb, and God's wonderful work of rolling the stone away, not that Jesus should come forth, but that everyone might see the tomb is empty. Validated, vindicated by resurrection. So those are the three building blocks of our gospel. Now turn the sheet over, please. And we come to what I think is the most important part how to recover the situation which called forth the Gospel of Mark 
so that we might begin to see the faces of the men and women and children for whom this gospel was prepared. We begin with early church tradition. And the fun thing about the Gospel of Mark is the tradition is absolutely uniform. There isn't a dissident voice among any of the church fathers about the circumstances out of which Mark's gospel arose. All of them agree Mark's gospel was related in some way to the preaching of Peter. And all of them agree this gospel was prepared for the church in Rome. So what we as New Testament scholars do is we begin to look at early Roman history. And we ask, what was a crisis for the church in Rome of sufficient proportion that the Spirit of God would stir the heart of his servant Mark and cause this gospel to be written? Almost certainly, the place to begin is with a Roman historian whose work, the Annals of Rome, were prepared in the early 2nd century. It's a history of the Roman Empire and the emperors in the 1st century. It's not complete. Only certain of the books have come down to us. But we are very fortunate that Book 15 and Section 44 has come down to us. It's a section that begins with the word disaster struck. Disaster struck. Tacitus tells us that Nero, the emperor, wanted to build a monument for himself. He was going to call it the Golden Palace. The only problem was that as he looked over Rome, why there wasn't a square yard of land upon which to begin to build this golden palace. In fact, if you were a citizen of Rome at this particular time and you wanted to build, I mean now, and you wanted to build, you have to pay not only for land rights but for air rights. Why? Because you could come back to your house and find someone has built a house on top of yours. Rome at the time was a city of about one and a half million people. It was the largest, most congested, one of the oldest cities of the Roman world. And there simply wasn't any land available. But what Nero saw was this. In the area around the Circus Maximus, and when we hear circus, I'm sure our children think of the three great rings of the circus and elephants and lions and clowns and trapeze artists. But you and I know that the Circus Maximus, the great circus, was actually an ovular chariot race course. And around that ovular There were all kinds of shops. 
filled with flammable material, and then spreading out in every direction. There was a swamp in which lived literally tens of thousands of persons. Now Nero began to think, if I could clear that swamp, there would be plenty of land on which to build the golden palace. And so the emperor left the city. He wasn't going to be in the proximity of any disaster that might possibly strike. Now, Rome at that time was divided into 14 different districts. And Tacitus tells us, on a darkened night, gangs of men carrying flaming torches made their way down to the Circus Maximus and began to throw these flaming firebrands into the shop. And when people tried to stop them, they said, we're acting on imperial orders. And it wasn't long before the whole area began to be engulfed in flames. And then the unexpected happened. The wind changed. And took the flames out of that relatively low and flat area and lifted it up into the Palantine Hill District, where most of the senators had built their homes, and where most of those conquests or the monuments documenting the conquests of the Roman Republic had been placed. And from the Palantine, it spread to the other hills until before you knew it. Then, out of the 14 districts, were on fire. Rome, the eternal city, was on fire in 10 of the 14 districts. Nero never returned to the city until his own palace was threatened. It was rumored that at the height of the fire, he had gone on a private balcony and had sung of the destruction of ancient Troy by fire. And that's where we get the proverb, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Now Tacitus says it took over two weeks to bring the flames under control. The problem was Rome had been built without organization and planning. So pathways simply went in and out of the city, and all buildings were so congested one against another, it was almost impossible for firefighting equipment to get through. But finally, after two weeks, it was brought under control, only to break out again suspiciously on the estates of Tigellinus, who was the head of Nero's elite Praetorian Guard. When the flames were finally put out, Tacitus said the emperor did what he could. He offered sacrifices to the gods. He entered into elaborate urban renewal. He had fire of uh, debris and ash carried away and insisted that all new construction be of fireproof material, brick and stone. He constructed parks. He enlarged streets. He lowered the price of grain by 75% because 
famine was a genuine threat within the city because of the destruction of so many of the stores. But Tacitus says, nothing that he did won him any favor with the people because of a persistent rumor that he himself was responsible for the fire. It was to suppress that rumor that Nero fabricated a scapegoat and found it in a despised group within the city known as Christians. Now, Tacitus knew that most of his readers didn't know who the Christians were. So he tells us Christians take their name from one Jesus Christ who was put to death by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. Exactly what the Gospel of Luke tells us. And then comes for me a critical statement. Suppress for a while. This superstition suddenly broke out again, not only in Jerusalem, the place of its origin, but it is spread all over the Roman world and it's come to that sinkhole of the Tiber Rome itself. Now Tacitus never speculates why a movement that had been brought into check suddenly had new vitality. But do you remember Luke 24? The walk to Emmaus? Why Cleopas and his companion who are walking despairingly home from Jerusalem to their village where their home was located say to the stranger who is drawn beside them we had hope that he was the one to redeem Israel. They no longer hope that. Check! but suddenly new vitality. And the New Testament knows only one answer to the question, how was it that a movement that was brought into check suddenly was full of life all over again? And that's the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I find in the witness of Tacitus an implicit witness to the resurrection. That's important. Because those who are critics of biblical Christianity say it's only the Gospels that tell us about the resurrection. I say that Tacitus, who speaks of Christianity as superstition, a pernicious superstition, was no sympathizer of the Christian witness, is himself a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, Tacitus goes on and says, Nero had known Christians arrested. And on their information, he doesn't tell us the information was secured through torture, but you can be certain it was. On their information, large numbers of Christians were rounded up, and their death was made a bad joke. They were sewed inside the skin of deer. And then dogs that had been starved were unleashed 
to tear them apart. Nero, who had reigned for ten years, for the first time in his reign, opened the gates of the imperial garden and welcomed the people to come in. And he lingered among them in the dress of a charioteer. An allusion to the fact that the fire had begun at the Circus Maximus. Tacitus says when night fell, illumination was given to the garden by flaming crosses on which Christians hung. The way the account ends is interesting. Although these Christians deserve to be punished for their stubbornness, who they would not be punished. They would not withdraw their confession that Jesus was Lord. The people were rather moved to pity, for they saw that they were suffering not for the crime of arson, but to satisfy one and two. I believe those were the circumstances in which the Spirit of God stirred in Mark to prepare the gospel to which we're going to give attention to some. It would be interesting to know how many of you were aware that this gospel was birthed in the crisis of martyrdom. You see, before this time, Christians had been made the object of marketplace gossip. Oh, there were silly things that were said. They were cannibals. Because they drank the blood, they ate the flesh of their master. They were incestuous. Because at that time, the Lord's table was always observed within the framework of a meal that was called the agape, a love feast. Christians called each other brothers and sisters. And no pagan would be present at the agape. Ah, pagan said. A love feast where brothers and sisters get together and they won't allow us to come. We know what's taking place there. You and I can smile. But undoubtedly, those kinds of marketplace pieces of gossip hurt. But it was a very different situation where suddenly the tramp of the truth of the only soldier stopping outside your door could mean death of you. Could mean the consignment of being torn apart by rabbit dogs. Where it could be mean being put in on a cross of them set on fire. Christian confession such In the word of Jesus, if anybody would come after me, let that person say no to the self. Take up the cross and follow me with all that God. But me that do start Now, if that's true, 
there ought to be some indication of this within the pages of the New Testament. So turn with me, if you will, to the document we call First Peter. And without going in great detail, those who have specialized in the study of this letter point out that there is really a dividing point between what they think is the letter proper 1-1 to 4-11 and what may well be a hastily written postscript 4-12 to 5-14. In 1-1 through 4-11, you can get the flavor of First Peter. You may have to suffer various forms of pride. It's a possibility. Suffering is almost a remote possibility. But in 4.12, we read the words, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. What was described in 1 Peter 1.1 4.11 as a possibility has apparently begun. And as the account goes on, we read in verse 15, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer, thief, or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. On it goes. In 5.8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory and Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast, to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Now it's verse 13 of chapter 5 that's of special interest to me. He, who is at Babylon, or she, who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greeting. And so does my son Mark. The she is a reference to the church. In Greek, every noun has gender. Sometimes you can understand why a word was given a masculine or feminine gender, and other times there is no obvious reason. The word for road, for example, is not odd. 
A ecclesia. The church is a feminine noun. So she who is in Babylon sends greeting. The church in Babylon sends greeting. Babylon is itself what we call a cryptogram. It's a code word for Rome. Babylon is not holy. Babylon is not home. The church in Rome sends you greeting. And so does my son Mark. Mark is with Peter in Rome when the persecution breaks out. When Peter speaks about brothers and sisters throughout the world undergoing the same kind of suffering, he is talking about what he can see in the experience of the men and women for whom Peter and Mark have taken on pastoral responsibility. 1 Peter 5.13 is a witness to the fact that the crisis of martyrdom, the crisis of suffering because you bear the name Christian, is occurring in Rome at this time. Well, there ought to be witness to this in the Gospel of Mark itself. And we'll be calling attention throughout the course of this study to many of those passages. But I call particular attention to just a few texts that might make you begin to read Mark in fresh light. I spoke to you about the temptation narrative. It's found in 1, 12, and 13. At once the Spirit sent him, that is Jesus, out into the desert, or the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Now the next phrase is critical. He was with, NIV says, the wild animals. He was with the wild beasts, and angels attended him. You are a Christian in Rome. You have every reason to know that your life is very fragile. That identification as a Christian will cost you your physical life. You've heard reports of those who were forced into the arena where they faced lions, bulls, bears, other wild beasts. And suddenly you discover in the pages of Mark, Jesus was with the wild beasts. He had already experienced what you may well experience. That detail is found only in the Gospel of Mark. You will not find it in Matthew, will not find it in Luke, will not find it in John. It is only in Mark. Take a look at 319. Here you have a list of the disciples of Jesus. It's a quite traditional list. And it ends with Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, reference to Judas and his betrayal will be found in all of the Gospels. 
one of the saddest aspects in the crisis of martyrdom is when brothers and sisters who have shared the deep things of faith with you decide to play the coward and to give information about the secret places where Christians are gathering, about their activity, about their identity. And you discover that Jesus knows all about this. For one of his own was Judas to be praised. Take a look at 4.17. It's the interpretation of the famous parable of the sower. And Jesus said, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. When your heart is breaking, because men and women who sat in the pew with you are no longer attending the gatherings of the church, we discover that Jesus knew it was going to be this day. When persecution and the crisis of martyrdom comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Take a look at that very famous statement about discipleship in Mark 8.34. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That means that the call to discipleship is a call to martyrdom. Very few of us have heard it in that way. But the Christians in Rome certainly would have heard it in those terms. Let's take a look at another passage that's found only in Mark. Mark 9, 49. After speaking about the manner in which a hand, a foot, an eye can betray you into sin, Jesus said, everyone will be salted with fire. Jesus spoke about the fact that Christians would go through the deep fires of trial by fire. Only Mark remembered that Jesus had said, you will not find it in Matthew, not in Luke, not in John. Everyone will be salted with fire. Or take a look at John, uh, Mark 10, 30 and 31. Peter came to Jesus and said, we've left everything to follow you. What will be our reward? And Jesus says, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Home, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and give them persecution. That phrase is found only in Mark's gospel. And with them persecution. 
Why did Mark remember that Jesus had qualified the statement in that way? Because he was writing for a persecuted church. Well, we can go on and on in this way, but how does the Gospel of Mark end? With Jesus appearing before Pontius Pilate, a governor with the power of life and death, and he hears the horrifying words, Abi Kusha, you will count the cross. I assure you that for the constituency of those Christians in the house churches in Rome, that word that indicated Jesus had already endured what they might well be called to endure was an exceedingly significant word. That leads me to the conclusion that Mark is a pamphlet for hard times. It is a pastoral response to a church that is the object of persecution under Nero following the great fire of Rome. Your assignment, preparation for next week, is to begin to read Mark in this life. Put yourself in the place of the men, women, and children who knew identification with Jesus would be constant, but that there was no other time. And I believe the detail of this topic Our gracious God and Father, thank you for the privilege of gathering without any fear that there'll be a troop of soldiers who will break in upon us. Tear the microphone away. Seize us. See that we are incarcerated only to be treated with humiliation and ultimately death. We are so secure. But help us to identify with your martyr church. For there are no guarantees that that church will not make its appearance in our day. And the martyr church exists in the world this day. Help us to identify with brothers and sisters whose faces are all too unfamiliar to us, or who mark it a vital word. Make it a vital word to us. We pray for Jesus. And in his powerful 